Today's episode is with Darren Rovell. Darren spent two decades reporting on the biggest stories in sports business for ESPN and CNBC, and he became an executive producer at Action Network in 2018. Darren and I spent this conversation discussing breaking into sports business, Kobe Bryant's $400 million investment win, how much college athletes are making on name, image, and likeness deals, the best athlete investors of all time, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30-plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, U.S.-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code JOE. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Darren, thank you for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time. I got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about relative to sports betting, NIL, collectibles, all of that. Uh, But I want to start going all the way back. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize is that every major publication, sports media-wise, has a business reporter now, a business of sports reporter. But you really kind of invented that almost uh, to some degree back in 2000. Coming out of college, you got a job at ESPN immediately uh, for essentially a new position. How did you make that happen? Well, first of all, it's great to be on, and congratulations on this podcast. Um, it's it's an honor to be on. Um, well, you know, in the beginning, when I first started with sports business, uh, for the most part, the people that were covering sports business 
were people who were put on the so-called concrete beat. Uh, and the concrete beat would be when a stadium was built. And so they would take a local reporter, maybe not a sports reporter, who would sit in on meetings and talk about the updated, this updating of the stadium. And that would become uh, a sports business reporter. And it would actually be in the business section, not on the sports section. There were some uh, predecessors of mine that did do sports business. Uh, Scott Sosnick at Bloomberg, who's now at Sportico. Richard Sandemir uh, at the New York Times, who became an obituary writer, uh, Richard Alm at the Dallas Morning News. So there were guys, um, there wasn't much national coverage of it. Uh, and I just felt that as someone who liked business as much as sports, that it was a, a great way to have a niche, not have to toil in small markets. Um, and eventually I felt that if presented in the right way, the sports fan would come around to enjoying the business, which in the beginning uh, was not that easy because there was a lot of resistance to talking about the business because so many people thought about sports as an escape. And then I came in in my scrawny little way and inserted business in there. And so we, I mean, that's the beginning of my hatred. I mean, the, the hatred for me at, at, the, you know, at its root is, is that. Uh, that that Tiger Woods sinks a putt in 2000, and I'm I'm crawling in there and uh, you know saying how much he made. We're, um, we're, we're going to get to that the the Twitter stuff. Uh, I would love to touch on all of that, but first, so we had Scott Bloomberg. You come in at ESPN. Were you ESPN's first business reporter? Yes, you were. All right, and how do you convince them to let you go on TV and start talking about this stuff? So first of all, I had to convince them to. I mean, I created the job. They, I, I think, a lot of it. You know, if you look at the book Outliers. Um, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were in college their first year, and that's when computers were first in libraries. Like that's for me, part of me being me and getting the chance was me being born in 1978, me coming into college being like, you know, do I really need an email? Me coming out of college in the dot com boom. And it was the first time that they were able to kind of flip the hierarchy of, hey, this guy's, you know, this kid's too young. The whole kid's too young thing flipped with the internet. And I was able to get in there and say, you know, give me a chance. And so ESPN.com gave me a chance for six months and we kept going. And, and I, I signed, I was there for six years in my first stint. Uh, and as that was happening, so ESPN was ESPN.go.com. Originally it was owned, but do you know the Paul Allen story? No. Okay. This is a good one to tell. Okay. So Paul Allen in like 1995 went to ESPN and said, hey, there's this thing called the internet. Can I license ESPN's name? And they said, yes. And uh, his company was called Starwave. And uh, they had reporters like Ted Bishop, who is basically like a business guy. In, in the early going, it was not like Peter Gammons covering baseball. They just had like Ted Bishop going to the World Series and covering, and they just licensed the ESPN name. And then in like 1997, ESPN's like, uh, yes, this thing called the internet. Paul, you know, can you be a good guy and sell it back to us? And, and he actually did. I mean, he could have bent them over big time. Uh, but so as it was coming into 2000, this was when ESPN really started to do journal, dot com journalism. And so they started to respect the dot com 
the TV side. And that's how I got on TV because I wrote enough stories that were getting enough traction on ESPN.com that they said, well, we should bring this guy on TV. And in the beginning, it was ESPN News, which was the, you know, ESPN News at the time, it was like three or four years old where they would run press conferences. And I would go on there and with Bob Stevens and Bob Halloran and, you know, just these guys, we would just talk. And what's hilarious is I never thought anyone watched ESPN News. It was just giving me incredible reps. But then I realized all the athletes watched ESPN News because they watch all the highlights in the press conferences. So like two years in, I'm like 24 years old. I go to a card show and Tony Gwynn's like, hey, it's Darren Ravel from ESPN News. And I'm like, what? Um, so so uh, that's how it happened, that there was kind of respect from the TV side about the dot com side. And I I was prolific enough that I think some people said, hey, this is if we're covering it here, we should probably cover it on TV. And were you guys just seeing like year over year growth tremendous every year after that? Because now sports business is uh, it's an entire industry, right? There's there's media companies that focus specifically on sports business. Uh, and, and obviously people are making a living out of it and doing all this stuff. So were you guys just seeing tremendous growth on everything you were doing? Yeah, you know, it was hard for to see growth in the beginning because if you were in the in the early dot com years, Joe, it was uh, it was kind of like okay, I'd file a story and we'd put it up, and then as it got older, there would be other stories that would come in, and it would just keep going down. In about two thousand five, things changed. That's when ESPN started using a heat map to understand how many hits something was getting. And it didn't automatically lead to your story going down by virtue of how old it was. Then we would look at the hits. And I was then going from complaining to saying, hey, you got to have this story out here. You know, people are I I did the first Jersey sales report ever. Um, And and I said, people are voting with their wallets. This is this is like for you you put the Harris poll out there. This is the biggest poll. and so I had to argue for the first couple of years. But once we got those heat maps and we really started paying attention to what was getting hit over the years, I think, and I've said this line a million times, people felt like they couldn't not pay attention to sports business anymore. And if they didn't know certain things, they would not be as good of a fan and they just sound like the stupid guy on the radio. Yeah, I totally agree with that assessment. I think it's interesting because you, you spent 18 years uh, obviously between a few different places with CNBC mixed in there. You were doing similar uh, work, obviously, on a different level and kind of scale and stuff, but you joined the Action Network in 2018, uh, which is obviously focused on sports gambling and sports betting. What in your mind made you do that decision? Was it something that you just saw coming with PASPA and you said, this is going to be a massive industry, I want to be involved? Uh, what was it in your mind? So, you know, I have a, a VC on the side, Tastemaker Capital, where I invest in businesses. And, um, I, you know, I'm always looking at, uh, you know, what is next. And when PASPA passed or, or what this, when the Supreme Court ruled that allowed states to make their individual decisions on whether they wanted sports betting or not, uh, that was in May of 2018. I had a year left on my contract at ESPN. And uh, here I am in New Jersey, and New Jersey was, of course, the state that that uh, did the original uh, suit um, that led to everything. Uh, but I'm here in New Jersey, and I'm looking at July, August, September, and I'm looking at the numbers, and I'm saying to myself as an investor, I am fortunate enough 
to be in a place where I see at least the seeds of maturity and the rest of the country doesn't have this. And if I see this here, how many businesses do you ever get a chance to look at and say, you know, I know the future is coming. I know how big it is. And I'm sitting in this area where I could see how big it is ahead of time. And I said to myself, I'd have to be an idiot not to get into the sports uh, gambling space. Now, I had covered maybe 20 stories a year, 30 stories a year. I was definitely ramping up and I was still doing sports business. I still say I do some sports business, though not as much. Uh, but sports betting just seemed to be uh, an absolute uh, powder keg and was unstoppable, was more unstoppable than marijuana, uh, which everyone was talking about. And so I had to find a place that made sense to me from a journalism standpoint. And the Action Network, you know, data-based, uh, Bloomberg of sports betting, great upside startup with uh, two executives, uh, Patrick Keene and uh, Chad Millman, who have great track records. That was it. Uh, and, and, and I uh, luckily ESPN let me out of my contract and I'm forever. I feel forever grateful for that. I was going to ask, what was that? What was that conversation like when you asked ESPN uh, and then told them this is what you wanted to do? Did they think you were crazy or did they try to fight it or did they just say, hey, go ahead, do whatever? Well, first of all, I, I did say, will you have a greater commitment to sports gambling? Uh, I need a greater commitment to sports gambling. And they said, well, we have Chalk, which was their, their page on ESPN.com, which Chad actually started. And, um, but they didn't, you know, they, they were really noncommittal. You know, we are Disney. Um, we're we're going to have to toe the line here. Uh, you know, we, they had David Purdom, uh, who's an incredible reporter. Uh, but I wanted to do a whole lot more on TV. And uh, it was clear that they weren't interested. So I think by virtue of saying, I want to be in gambling, I know I'm under contract, but you're telling me to my face that you're not going to do the full-blown reporting that I want to do, uh, then I'm going to have to go. And, and please, you know, if you'd let me out, I appreciate it. I'm not going to uh, anyone you'd consider a competitor. Yeah. And at that point, it kind of is just like, let's make everyone happy here, I think. Uh, yeah. But so... That's a good point, though. New Jersey, obviously, was the start, the first state. Uh, you were in the middle of it. They just recently became the first state out of all of them now to pass a billion dollars. Uh, in, in a month. In a month. Yeah, yeah. In a month. Yeah. So how big can this get? How big can it be? So New, New York is going to legalize it, right? And, the, and some of that is people coming in from New York City and gambling, whatever. Uh, but people are projecting it's going to be a lot bigger than this. How big can it be? So if you think about it, uh, billion-dollar handles should be uh, commonplace in New Jersey, New York, uh, Nevada might be able to get there if they take out in-person registration, Illinois, Pennsylvania, um, maybe one day, uh, Indiana. Uh, so there's going to be, I think five or six States that could do a billion a month, um, in, in, in at their great, at, at their height in football season. So that's, um, so that, I, yeah, I was yeah, going to say that's 50, 60 billion a year, but it's just football season, really, at the, the three or four months. Correct, that, correct, right. correct. So, you know, when you're talking about handle, uh, you know, so you're at four, you're at 20 billion. I mean, yeah, I mean, it could get up to with 
legalization in at least 40 states, we're talking about 35 billion, 40 billion. Yeah. So m- m- much, much bigger than it is uh, today. So let's talk about athlete investing for a second. You talked about your VC firm, Tastemaker Capital. Um, I think I know a lot about it, obviously, because I know you and some of the deals that you guys have done, but I think it's kind of a uh, an under-the-radar thing that you've done in your career, which has been, you're really in the thick of this stuff when it comes to the business side of it, all, obviously, but with the athletes also. And I know you've brought in, in some of these athletes on these deals that you've done uh, with Athletic Brewing and others. Just talk me through how that venture capital uh, firm came about, who you've talked to on it, who you've worked with, what kind of deals you guys have done. So uh, I always have been a lover of food and beverage, as my wife will tell you, if she doesn't tap me on the back, I'll be in a supermarket for three to four hours. I love trying new products. Um, And I quickly figured out that in food and beverage, there is one major advantage. And that is that what is in front of you is really in front of you. So what I mean by that is, if you invest in tech, you don't know what someone's doing in someone's basement that could at any point compromise you. In food and beverage, it is the process is slow enough that if you read the trade publications and you look at the supermarket shelves, you can get a sense of what is next, uh, uh, what might be a star coming out, Um, And so for me, it became pretty clear that that would be a good area to invest. And people, even if they invest in real estate or do some, you know, uh, whatever financial vehicles they're doing, if it's consumer, if it's uh, packaged goods, there's something cool about saying, I own a piece of this. So um, in 2017, uh, we started Tastemaker Capital. It's me, my brother. Uh, our CFO, Ben Tannen. And um, basically, I go out and I identify the trend. Um, You know, so our first investment was Bienna chickpeas. So the idea was people do not want to be eating uh, carbs that that are just empty calories, pretzels and chips. Uh, So then comes the chickpea, the ubiquitous chickpea that, you know, if it is a dried chickpea, it could simulate the crunch of a snack. Um, and can be a snack, and then you put flavoring on it, and essentially uh, it it uh, is protein balls that you know in the age of Atkins and keto uh, kind of stand out, um, and that turned out well, really well for us. We've we we got a significant piece of uh, uh, Vienna. We like to put usually between you know one to two million dollars per round. It's a SPV, so a special purpose vehicle. So each. Uh, time we bring in our investors and we've we've brought in a lot of athletes some i i can't disclose uh but um you know there's 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 been a bunch of athletes including jj watt uh that we've brought into deals and you know i think one of the ideals around that is that you know the ftc says that if you're getting paid you have to disclose it with a spawn or a partner uh but if you're an investor you you can say you love something and you've invested. Um, and so there's there's a way around things. And I think it's more powerful that you put money into it. So that idea uh, 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 kind of holds. And uh, and then we put money into athletic brewing, which um, is probably my proudest investment to date. Um, just because as someone who loves to say things that people then shake their head uh, and, I'm, and I'm not scared to be uh, polarizing, 
2019, when I said I invested in a non-alcoholic beer, uh, people thought that it was the dumbest thing ever. You, you probably got made fun of a lot on Twitter, I'm assuming. I The funny thing is I still am getting made fun of, and I'm real, I'm like, I know the numbers, so I'm like, I'm just like liking them and saving them so I can napalm them, you know, all these people. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so you do that analysis and, and, uh, and you say, well, you know, there just really hasn't been a great beer uh, in this country, but there's been great beers in Europe that are non-alcoholic and there's, they, they've taken a pretty sizable percentage of the market. So it just has to be something that's not O'Doul's and be great. And there's a chance and athletic and the CEO bill and, and co-founder John, I mean, these guys, these guys are amazing. So we brought people into that deal. Um, and then we invested in Foxtrot, uh, which is a high-end convenience store that also does delivery. Um, and so this is the things that we do on the side and uh, kind of allows me to get my investing, you know, mojo and, uh, and also um, get, get the athletes into, you know, really understanding the business. I love to coach them through the numbers and come off a board meeting and tell them, give them updates. Um, it's why we, we want to work with smart athletes. I, I don't just throw up random people into deals. I was going to ask off of that question, uh, someone who's been involved in the space for a long time, you've seen numerous deals, good and bad on the athlete side, uh, over the last 20 years, how has that relationship with the athletes and investing, uh, transformed over the last 20 years. Cause I yeah. think back in the day that the whole thing was right. These guys are all going broke. All these, all these, uh, men and women are going broke. There was a bunch of statistics being thrown around. And I think today, uh, it certainly changed to some degree. You're always going to have people that are, uh, uh, doing the wrong thing or not being super intelligent about it. But I think it's changed to some degree. So I'm curious on your opinion as someone who has dealt with these athletes over that period of time, what have you seen? Well, it used to just be the complete licensing model, Joe. I mean, it's like Michael Jordan's restaurant is licensed by Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan really doesn't really care about anything once the license goes off. And the only thing they care about is auditing the numbers, making sure that they get a gross percentage of the profits that were agreed to. Um, you know, restaurants were the thing. And um, I would say in the last five years, uh, what used to be cool in the locker room now isn't like the, Hey, I invested in a casino in Mississippi. Like that used to be, that used to win the locker room. And now it's, um, as you know, Bitcoin and NFTs and, and, uh, other kind of like, I think athletes aspire to be greater business people. Um, and that was not the case, uh, five or 10 years ago. And I think it's because of Kobe. I think it's because of Durant. Now Durant, you know, Duran and Rich Kleinman, I mean, they do invest in a tremendous amount of things. I don't know how they do it, because um, when I'm looking at three investments and focusing on three investments, I'm dizzy alone. I mean, they must be up to 100 right now. But there's definitely that aspirational quality of wanting to be a good businessman. And, you know, Kobe told me that um, he wanted to be known as a better everything than a basketball player, better businessman better person, better storyteller. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think there is that aspiration from the athletes more than there ever has been. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, one of the things that I see a lot, and I'm curious if you do too, is a lot of athletes want to be known for that now, right? And I don't know if it was always historically that. Not only do they do the deals, but they try to get as much exposure. They want more deal flow. They want people to think of them as a good investor. And they have this unique advantage that is, 
all the venture capital people want to hang out with them, right? They're professional athletes. They're some of the best people in the world when it comes to celebrity status and all of that. So they want to uh, be accepted and hang out with them. So whether it's Kevin or other people, they're being brought all of these deals, right? And it's not easy to just select which ones are good and follow the trends. Uh, so there's obviously some kind of skill that goes along with it. But I think today it's become much more apparent that athletes want to be known for business than it was in the past. Absolutely. It is it is just as important for them to be on the cover of now magazines, you can argue, or might go be going away, but it is just as important for them to be on the cover of Forbes or Business Week uh, as it is Sports Illustrated. In fact, I think some athletes would rather be on the business publications than sports, and that was just not the case 20 years ago. Yeah, so you brought up uh, Kobe earlier. Why don't we talk through how you met Kobe uh, and how that relationship evolved on the business side? So uh, I interviewed him a couple times up until 2009, um, but uh, 2009 media day, uh, Lakers um, uh, sat down with him. And at the end of the talk, he basically said, hey, you know, I know you're the business guy. You interview me every once in a while. Fascinated by it. Know you have a lot of connections. You know, would you mind? I'm kind of, you know, halfway, more than halfway through my career. Uh, you know, he's in the NBA around 12 seasons at that point. Um, you know, you mind if uh, we talk business and give me your phone number? So I gave him my phone number. I didn't really think there was going to be much of a relationship there. Um, and uh, after a while, it was some phone calls. And then really in like 2012, 13, I think texting kind of became more of a thing. And he was like all over the place. He knew uh, he, he wanted to get into business. He had an ad firm, Zambezi, that not many people knew that he had a, a piece of and he was behind the scenes. Uh, he wanted to get into everything. Um, and in 2013, uh, I told him, hey, I got a business for you. I think you should invest in it. It was Crave Beef Jerky. Um, and at the time, it was uh, uh, 29 million in revenue, I believe. And, uh, they had an $80 million valuation and they were looking for someone, one person who could give them, uh, $8 million cash for 10%. And I felt like, you know, there was a lot of heat around the industry and, uh, that, it, that it kind of moved against the, the carbs and chips. And I liked it. And, uh, I said, I thought he should invest. He had a business advisor who went against that. And he ultimately didn't invest. Um, and then like 10 months later, it sold to Hershey for you know, 290 million, uh, 280 million. And, uh, you know, he's, he basically said, uh, all right, the next one I invest in. Yeah. So that would have been what three X in the span of a few months, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he, he would have made something like $20 million, um, which was, I think at the time his, his NBA salary. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always funny comparing it to the NBA salary. Right. Right. So, so the next one happened to be, he, he, he then said, I want you to introduce me to, you know, as many billionaires as you know, people who you respect. And I was on the phone as he met these people and it included uh, Michael Rubin from Fanatics, Mike Rapoli from then Vitamin Water and just starting up Body Armor. And uh, Mike had known Kobe briefly um, through Vitamin Water. They did a couple things, but not, not intimately. And, uh, and we had the introduction and they just clicked. I mean, Mike and Kobe are on a unique level of crazy that just people can't, you can't find it in this world. And even though, even though 
body armor was not that good of a drink at the time. Um, I don't know if I would have invested in it, to be honest with you. Uh, Kobe gave Mike $6 million for 10%. And, uh, that, uh, that, that grew and grew and, and, you know, uh, this year, uh, body armor is going to do a bit more than a billion in sales, having not touched basically like, like some people, I don't know, Joe, about you, but like some people are like, what's body armor? I actually like, haven't even seen it, which is hilarious because it's, it's doing a billion dollars and in like in the East coast, it, it's everything in the, in the South and the Midwest, but like in the East coast, like some people don't even know what it is, which is crazy considering it's at a billion. And I think that's what Coke bought into. So when it sold for 8 billion, um, I, I can't give exact numbers, but, but it's accurate that, that Kobe, you know, netted around 400 million. Amazing. Amazing. Right. So, he takes six million, ten percent of the company. Uh, almost a decade later, now eight years later, he turns it into four hundred million when they sell. What was his involvement with the brand through those years? Because a lot of the stories we hear about Kobe was he wanted to be super hands on, right? He wanted to be creative, almost, almost, almost like, almost like Mike. Mike let him be this because he signed up to it. But there would be people who would be very upset with how obsessed he was with he 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 wrote some of the advertising like he was he was as involved. This is not bull. He, he was involved as involved with the brand as you could ever imagine. And that that's him. That's him. He he uh, I think like I remember in the early days when Nike was issuing press releases saying like LeBron worked with the Nike people to do the shoe. And it's like come on. He was, he was in Beaverton, Oregon for like two days. And he's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Kobe was in, just on a next level of obsession. And I truly believe that a lot of entrepreneurs would be like, what the hell? I didn't sign up for this. Do you think that his second career in business would have been even more impressive than his first? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that that's part of, aside from uh, being a friend and a father, um, that's part of the tragedy of this, right? Like a lot of people are like, I wonder why Kobe hit me so hard. And it, it's because it was very clear from the first, you know, year, year plus um, that he was going to contribute to this world in a unique, forceful way. And now we don't have him. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I could talk about this stuff all day. I know you can too. Uh, he was obviously a good friend of yours, but let, let's talk about some of the NIL stuff. Uh, College is obviously athletes are allowed to be paid now. Select states for high school, same thing. We're a few months into it now. How do you think it's going? Good thing, bad thing, anything you've seen? Well, it's interesting that the first guys, the first names haven't turned out that well, right? Like Spencer Rattler, uh, not no longer does a half season as Oklahoma's quarterback. He was number one. De'Eric King from Miami uh, doesn't do that well and then gets hurt, so he's not playing. Mackenzie Milton is not even the starting quarterback at Florida State. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on. It's almost to the point of it's like a curse um, that a lot of these guys, Kayvon Thibodeau uh, gets hurt. He's not the force that people thought he was going to be. Um, and so I think NIL people say, well, this is why we do NIL, right? So that if you do get hurt or if you aren't what you once were, you could cash in at the height of your marketability. I think that's saving face a little bit. I don't really subscribe to that. I think that companies were 
a little bit hesitant to get into this to start. And I think there might be more hesitancy in the future. That being said, I expect, you know, the companies to take chances with basketball players. Um, but I do think that on July 1st, there was a lot of excitement uh, that this was going to be something that was going to lead to riches for a lot of people. And uh, I think it's led to riches for maybe 25 people. Um, and as long as there's no negative, and as long as you're not turning athletes into employees and then they have to file taxes, um, you know, I think that's okay. But I also don't think it's as big as people think it is. I do. One of my takeaways, though, is that it seems to be a little bit of a shell game uh, because of the fact that agents can get involved. There's been some deals where I'm like, this. some of this doesn't make sense. And, and what do you uh, mean by that, that it, that it could be a shell game? That it's not really name, image, and likeness for that business. It's to prove to the athlete that the agent is good ahead of time so that agent can then get the athlete when they turn pro. Yep. So I think there's hairy things going on. Nothing, don't have any evidence of it, but I think there's hairy things going on with relationships that agents have with companies and, uh, you know, some of these deals from like, like a, having a trading card company from making a trading card company from scratch to do a million dollar deal to me doesn't necessarily seem kosher. Now, maybe I'm being unfair um, but you have no distribution, you have no production, and you think by offering a licensing deal to a college kid, that's going to start up a trading card company. So, so I think you're talking about Quinn Ears, uh, who was a high school player and left a year early to go cash in on NIL and got a million, a million and a half dollars. I think he got a couple cars and maybe another deal or two. So he's benefited well, and I think a lot of people said – this is why we want to do this, right? He was in high school. His family wanted him to go capitalize on his fame and his ability and, and go make money. Do you think that we're ever going to get, and not saying this is the case with him, but I think one of the concerns with NIL was that we were going to see, uh, whether you want to call them boosters or other people associated with the program, that they were going to find creative ways to funnel money to students, student athletes. Right, but that's the second part, money. Joe. That's the second part. So so is is it a, it is, is it not what we think like, so one of the we we've kind of said that through jerseys and autographs that would be the way that a booster would be like oh I'm gonna buy all these jerseys um, and then you're gonna come now uh, states have been pretty clever in terms of like NIL doesn't start until you get there I think that's that helps a little bit uh, you're not pre-selling the jerseys and I think with the exception of some schools. Schools have not wanted to get into business with the athletes. So the jerseys, ironically, I've covered this for 20 years. The entire talk of name and image and likeness were video games and jerseys. And that is not the focus here. After yeah, it's car dealerships, it's restaurants, it's right. it's everything associated with it. Right, them. right. So so the jerseys was gonna be something uh that um was going to happen and it's not happening because schools don't want to get in the overt business of 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 being in business with with the athletes right now and so you have to have situations like michigan where there's the m den which is a go-between um to, to actually make that happen so I, I i i think that that slowed things down a little bit um but i the ncaa is clearly all off they are not interested in touching anything because they just had this case 
Uh, and do you think that's the right approach or the wrong approach? I just think it is what it is, right? They have this case where they're limit, they can't limit what athletes can make. And I mean, it's a joke. You go from be the, the main point of the NCAA umbrella is to be an enforcer and you have all this enforcement and you agents can't represent an athlete on June 30th and July 1st, it's game. What? After all this time, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think some people are questioning what they do now, right? With, with NIL coming in and other things like this is if you're an enforcement agency and a lot of the stuff that you were supposed to enforce goes away. What are you? What do you do, right? right. So, and the only thing they do is they run the 88 NCAA championships. And then it's like, okay, well, can't you just get an event company to do that? Like, does, does the- Well, they get paid the, a lot to do it too, right? So- Well, yeah, yeah. They're they they, they they're getting that lion shit. You know, they're getting a big piece of the March Madness money. So is that even worth it? And at some point, if they continue to act like this, I think there is a real conversation about what do they do and who can replace them. Do you think an athlete will make over a million dollars this year? Uh, real money. Like if, if I said, let me look at your bank account. No. And what do you mean? What's the opposite? I think, I think, I think the closest, the funny thing is, I think the closest might be, uh, you know, the, the Cavender twins or live done, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I really like the Cavender twins at Fresno state because they are legit. Like one of them got named the, the, uh, the, the mountain West or whack, whatever they are. Sorry. Uh, uh, preseason player of the year. Like they're great basketball players. It's not that like there's models. I mean, Liv Dunn's a, a great gymnast at LSU. Um, but, uh, I like the fact that it's not just, they happen to be athletes who are models. So that it falls under NIL. Um, but, but I think between them and, and Liv Dunn, I think maybe they come close to a million dollars. I'd like to see it more spread out. Um, but the truth is it's just, it's never going to be that way. The stars are going to win. And I just think it's going to be interesting to see the way the dominoes have fallen, whether companies are staying away, because again, one of the rules is that you, even if someone leaves a school, it can't be contingent on that and it can't be contingent on playing time. So the money is guaranteed. So the only out is what is it? A a morality clause, basically a moral clause saying a clause saying that they, if they do something I, wrong, I, I, I guess so. But there is, there's, there's, there's nothing based on, you cannot be, you are a starter and even you are playing on the team. So Spencer Rattler bench still getting paid by raising canes, everyone that he did the deals with or whatever, even if he got paid, they yep. can't get any back. Derek King, same thing. Yep. Uh, so Nick Saban said that Bryce Young was close to seven figures. Uh, no, that was, that, that was the, that was, I don't know what, like, Maybe was it recruiting? Was he just recruiting? I know that people close to Bryce Young were not happy about that because that was that maybe the offers were there, but he made it seem like Bryce had signed deals for that. And that's just not true. Um, So that that was a whole thing that created a big mess, but I think behind the scenes. Yeah, it's not surprising, but I, I think what's interesting to see is like what will happen next year, right? Because uh, if you look at Dr. Pepper, you, you mentioned it earlier, they had the whole national campaign with DJ Clemson, and then he uh, doesn't perform as well, right? They start taking some of the commercials down and all this stuff. So do you think that people will be more cautious next year, 
or they already got enough ROI on these deals that, you know, if it's social media or whatever it is, they'll end up making their money back anyways. Well, that, that, right. So year one, like they've made their money because year one, the, the we've talked about the deals as groundbreaking. Yeah. So year two, do you scale it back? Um, you know, are, are year two people going to get year two quarterbacks going to get less money because of this? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I don't feel like there's, uh, the amount of companies that I thought would be bidding for the services, it doesn't seem like there's, there are all these, like you expect Dr. Pepper to do that. There's not like any unexpected sponsors coming in and say, let's use NIL, you know, as you mentioned, it's the car dealerships, it's the restaurant. I'm not seeing a uh, place, I, I, obviously, you know, you, you can do the crypto. Uh, I, I, I'm just not seeing many categories of excitement or a lot of competition for these guys. What about the uh, one company? I forget the name of them right now. I'm blanking, but you would certainly know. Is it's it's the Energy Bar Company, or uh, they did a deal with BYU where they gave the walk-ons. Uh, oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. I forget who it was, but that seemed oh, like a company that was using NIL to get a national kind of attention, right, and doing unique deals that gave them some kind of advantage on a on a marketing level that they may not have had. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, you know, the whole fairness thing We're we're, we're doing a, a walk on program or we're doing an entire team um, and we're giving them scholarship money. You know, I think, I think that's nice. Uh, that's not what's going to get the most attention. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it, but it is, I, I, didn't, I didn't even mention DJ in the beginning, like, God, how many guys can go down? Um, it's almost like who, who from the original group uh, was uh, ended up having a good year is right? still standing. Yeah. JT Daniels is, was replaced. Yeah. Right. Or he, yeah. Yeah. So, so, he, uh, you know, it's almost like there's no, there's actually no one who's gotten these deals that, that, that is still standing. And I, I, I do think, although, you know, Darren Heitner and those people yell at me, people who are in the industry, I actually do think, that uh, that there is a negative there. Do you see, so part of this on the other side was the lower tier athletes, right? Call it D2, D3 athletes uh, that couldn't necessarily go earn compensation, but now they have the ability to do coaching lessons and all of that kind of stuff, right? Just just the ability to make some type of cash. And everyone knows whether it's $5, $100, $1,000, some cash in college is helpful, obviously. And everyone comes from different circumstances. The data that we've seen through platforms like Open Door, Open Doors, and all these other uh, all these other NIL related companies, is that the majority of the deals are in that kind of range, right? They're very small. There's some outliers that bring the averages up thirty to one hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, th I, th I think the stars are going to. It's going to be a meritocracy, right? The stars are going to be a D three lacrosse guy who's just really good at explaining and can get a good platform, and people will you know, can latch onto it and be like, listen, this guy really is good at teaching kids lacrosse. And right? do you think that all the value necessarily comes through social media or there's a platform for, uh, or I think I, you, you need to be augmented through some sort of platform. Someone has to recognize you. That as could be national TV though, right? That could be correct. social. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So before we let you go, I want to talk to you a little bit about Twitter. Uh, you were obviously a very early user on the platform. You have a very unique approach. You have a following over 2 million uh, people now. How early did you get on Twitter? I was there in March of 2009. So the first people I heard getting on it were like Shaq and Lance Armstrong in in no November of 2008. 
I was probably among the top, the first 10 journalists on there. And to me, it wasn't about me uh, disseminating what I had onto a platform. It was, you know, Joe, probably you more than anyone understand what we go through as business reporters to aggregate, to aggregate, like, how do you find what people are talking about? And I used to go through a site called sportspages.com. I would click through 200. It was the links to 200 sports pages. And it's been me two hours every morning so I could find out what was going on. Oh, my God, I sound like such an old man right now. Rich Johnson's sports pages. Then there was something called blog lines where I followed a bunch of blogs. And that's how I got it. And then Twitter comes along and I'm like, wait a second. I can follow things and it will come into my feed and it will save me a whole lot of time. So that well, that's really what it was about. And then I learned about dissemination. And really what was interesting to me is also kind of given the life cycle of my career. Here I was at ESPN for six years. And then I was at CNBC for three years. And I do feel like I lost some of my ESPN audience. So in 2009, I'm thinking to myself, if this platform takes off, people are going to find Darren Ravel again. And that's why I pushed it hard. But there was a lot of difficult times uh, with CNBC. Like, you can't put that out first. You have to check every tweet with the news desk. You know, they were paying me. So there was a lot of growing pains in the beginning being a reporter and putting things on Twitter. I literally would would be approving 20 tweets a day with the news desk at CNBC. Oh, wow. And just because it was a new platform that they didn't they didn't necessarily know anything about? And, and, it, and it was clear that they weren't monetizing it. Yeah. So they were like, we have CNBC.com. Why won't you write the whole story? I'm like, well, it's not a story. It's a nugget. They're like, okay, but is it a nugget to go on air and do breaking news? And then I'm it? sure when you tweet the article, that's fine though, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. And then they understand it. I remember I had a battle to try to get 5,000, our first 5,000 followers with the pharmaceutical reporter, Mike Huckman. Um, I think he's at like 7,000 right now. But, but it was close to 5,000. Um, and uh, I think, you know, so many people dismissed it. I never said it was the next big thing, um, but I, I, I stuck in there. And uh, and you were consistent the whole way? On, yeah. Like basically posting every day, multiple times a day? Same yeah. consistent that you're doing now the whole way or, or slightly less yeah. before? Yes. And then, yes. And then uh, when TweetDeck came out, I started saving dates and drafts and, you know, hitting things on anniversaries and stuff like that. Um, I was the first person, I think, to to uh, to use a hat tip uh, on in Twitter history. Um, so you know, there, there's there's some things, and I think over time it just got, you know, increasingly more negative and difficult. But you know, hey, I, I come to battle every day. So I as, as as you know, as you know, when I want to say something chirpy. Yeah, but you're. I like the way you do it because when you say something, you at least expect something in return, and it goes both ways. And and it's it's fun most of the time. Uh, and I think to some degree, some people take it too seriously and, and get upset about a lot of things. But do you uh, block early and often, or you you restrain yourself from that? Uh, I will block if it's really nasty. Uh, if it's really nasty or. Uh, cursing or gross or, you know, someone who I just, you know, uh, you're not paying for my Twitter feed. I, you know, and, and part of it is 
you know, my enjoyment. Um, and I, I, I'm just not going to let anything from t- Twitter ruin my day. And yeah. so, so it's just for me that I block, I, I block to protect myself from going crazy on you. I don't block cause I don't want to see you. I block because I can't help myself, you know, attack you. <laughs> and I'm just, and I'm just saying it's better for me to just pass. The, the best are the ones that, uh, cause I, I, I'm probably a little, uh, more quick to block than it sounds like I do it very quickly. I, if you give me a hard time, like there's, there's back and forth, there's asking tough questions. There's, there's giving a hard time, uh, which is all fun and games. But if you say something that's, you know, nasty or whatever it is, I, I apply the, the block early and often, but I always find it funny. Some people reach out on other platforms <laughs> and they'll say, uh, Hey, why'd you block me? Can you unblock me? I, I didn't mean this. I didn't mean that. Uh, the funny, the funny thing is I've done 520 cameos and about a hundred of those either are from people I they paid people who I either blocked or a friend paying me to go nasty at someone who blocked me. So it's hilarious. Like it is, it, there is a truth to the fact that like, you know, people, uh, listen, I subscribe to people love you and hate you. It's all good. You know, the worst thing to be is irrelevant. If you're in the middle and people say, like, I think very few people, when you say Darren Ravel, they don't go, eh, the guy's okay. Like, yeah. they either love me or hate me. Well, and that's I, where I want to, that's where I want to be. I, I will say, uh, I, I've known you for a little bit of time now. And I think the the one thing that I have always uh, really admired about you is you don't care what anyone says, like, at all. Like, you, you just, like, sometimes uh, I feel like you put a tweet out and you know right away, you're like, someone's going to give me a hard time about this. But it's something I enjoy. It's something I care about. Something I wanted to post, whatever. Uh, and it's not often, right? But it, but it, I'm sure it happens. Uh, but you obviously don't care much about that, which I really like. Yeah, I, what I care about is being authentic. Uh, I was on the fourth day of my vacation. I was relaxing, and Aaron Rodgers goes on the Pat McAfee show, and I'm like, "Oh my God, my vacation is over right now." Like I told my wife, I'm like, "I'm putting out this tweet. This is going to be." you know, I'm, I'm going to jab into Aaron and say, this is the person who doesn't keep up with his family. And I know people are going to go crazy about that, but I, but you know, that's what I want to say. And I fire off the tweet. I put it in my bag. I go on a couple of water slides for an hour and then come back to mayhem. Um, you have but, to be mildly insane to tweet that out and put your phone in your bag and then go on a water slide. <laughs> I agree. I agree. That's from overtime, overtime. Yeah, like, but if you're Skip Bayless, you have Z- so Skip Bayless follows no one. So all he does is send out napalm bombs and then and and then doesn't see anything. So it doesn't matter. It's it's more uniquely dangerous for someone like me to put something out and like walk like I knew it was going down. You know, like that was it. I I you know I was looking to see if there was going to be a phone call from from uh you know aaron Rodgers or or someone at the packers or something i mean i've gotten great phone calls over time i've tweeted something and within like a minute you know people what's the what's the best one you can't tease us like that what's the best one you've ever gotten john elway what happened uh so in uh in 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 when when the broncos made it back to the super bowl uh i had held the story that had been forgotten about which was that in 1998 John Elway was offered 36, uh, uh, 20% of the team for 36 million. And I had held the story 
which had more details of any possible team sale than any in history because it was uh, the person who sold the team to Pat Bolin, um, his name was Kaiser, uh, he sued saying that they couldn't offer this deal to Elway because he had a right of first refusal if Bolin ever sold the team again. And that was being contended. So everything was in public documentation. So I had written that uh, the reason why uh, Elway didn't take the deal, uh, 20% for 36 million, is because he just didn't see himself as an executive. And he then took his money and put it into a Ponzi scheme and a couple other things that didn't work out uh, and then became an executive and, to, and now gets paid a salary. And the Broncos are now worth $3 billion. Um, and, and that 20% is worth 600, 700 million. And I, I held the story until the Tuesday of the Super Bowl, uh, which is one of my best holds ever does not compete with when I, uh, on, on, uh, on Mother's Day, on Father's Day, put out that Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s name was owned by his mother. Um, that, 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 that was another legendary hold. But yes, so I waited till Tuesday and because Peyton wasn't saying anything and it was like a boring media day, that became the craziest story. Everyone wanted to talk about Elway. And, and he um, called you or the Broncos called you? Uh, originally, the Broncos called me and said, you know, you didn't give him a chance to to respond. And I actually didn't. Uh, so that was my bad journalism. Um, but then I said, but then I got on the phone with him and I'm like, is there anything you want to say? And he's like, no, man, no. Like there, there was there was no comment. Um, so that, that was a, but I often get calls by, you know, listen, I'm just not scared to tweet things. I can't, I can't be, um, I, I can't be beholden to, to others. Um, and I think when at the time when I feel like, um, I don't want to be, I'm not going to tweet something cause it's too controversial. Uh, that's, that's the time that to hang up my, my, my Mac and hand it over to you. Yeah. So, uh, that's wild. First off, <laughs> I, I had heard the story obviously since then. Uh, but I didn't know they were that quick to call. I guess that makes sense when, uh, you're, you're publicly telling people that he missed out on $600 million. Right. But, right. Um, all right. I'm going to let you go, but last question, best athlete investor in your mind in history. Uh, I mean, there's guys that you don't hear of, like, you know, uh, Are you going to throw out Junior Bridgman? No, Junior Bridgman's great. I mean, I, Junior Bridgman—that's a—that's a good one. You know, he has like 500 franchises and really took advantage of his name back then. And franchises being became crazy. Uh, Dave Bing is a great one. Even Vinny Johnson, uh, the microwave, uh, who who became the CEO of an auto parts company in Detroit, really leveraging himself. Um, I think a lot of people use Magic Johnson, though I. I'm not particularly impressed with Magic. Um, he he does deals that open doors, but I'm not sure he he falls under that. Um, you know, Jordan deserves a nod because he actually did buy the Bobcats. This was not a uh, a, a, a deal. I mean, he bought like 85, 90% of the Bobcats at what would be a low. And people called, called, called him crazy when it was like 250 million. 
Uh, yeah, and, he's all, he's also licensed his name better than potentially any athlete in history. Right now, people say, "Well, you licensed it." You know, that's a mistake, right? But 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 he's made. I think it's got to be him because he's made more money often. Often. Oh, hold on, that was not just an earthquake. I think it's got to be him because he's made more money off endorsements than anyone else. Um, so, I I I I think it's got to be it's got to be Jordan. Do you think LeBron has the chance to surpass him in the business category? Potentially. Um, I think he's, he's armed himself with good people. He's associated himself with good people. I think there's a shot. Does Nike have any plans? And this is me uh, genuinely asking. I don't know the answer to this. Do they have any plans to roll out a similar package to what they have done for Jordan and the Jordan brand with LeBron? So I saw, I saw a tweet the other day that, uh, uh, there was a school that has LeBron's logo on their jersey for the first time ever, right? Or I don't know if it was the first time ever, but it was uh, obviously a big deal. Is there plans or do you think they will start rolling out kind of a brand, the LeBron brand versus the Jordan brand? I think they could do that. Um, you know, the logo certainly isn't as iconic. Um, I think they could. I, uh, You know, Nike right now to me seems pretty passive instead of aggressive, uh, over the last couple of years, I don't know what's going on with them. Um, not, not like they're not doing well, but I feel like they've lost some mojo. Is, uh, is, I know you're friends with Michael Rubin. Is he the next name that we're going to be talking about when it comes to one of the best entrepreneurs? Yeah. I mean, the question is, are the valuations, uh, that he's obsessed with right now, right? Obviously he's raising money and raising money. Are, are those going to come true? He created, uh, uh essentially like $30 billion at a thin air correct. in the last six months, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, quite yeah. the feat. Yeah. To, to, to build a $10 billion business on the potential of having a card company that you don't have, but you only have the licenses to, it's pretty amazing. Um, do you think it will are, be very hard to build the card part of it? Well, the question is going to be, he's a lot of direct to retail, obviously a direct to consumer, um, and so the question is going to be without hobby shops, how are they going to deal with bots? How are they, you know, collectible industry is crazy. How are they going to deal with everything that is now, you know, they're changing the paradigm. They're going to change the way you get it. Um, uh, listen, I think his obstacle is going to be focus. How are, how are they all? You can hire as many people as you want, but, uh, if you, if you're doing NFTs and you're doing it and gambling, that's the right. one negative that people have said is that he, there's a lot going on, right? They want to do gambling, NFTs, trading cards. They obviously have the merchandise business. They're growing all of this. How do you focus on kind of one thing and make sure that it's successful? So that that will determine if he's great or not. That will determine if he's great or not, whether he could turn this into the Amazon of sports. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't bet against him. I, yeah. uh, I, I think he's done a tremendous job, obviously. So uh, I wouldn't bet against him. All right, Darren, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time uh, and we'll have to do it again at some point. You got it. Good luck. Thank you.